Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Chrissy and Cindy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about, all while hanging with your mom friends. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive in. So many things affect the way that we parent our children. We aim to explore this in Mama Needs a Moment because it's important to hear other moms' backgrounds, hear their stories, and respect that we all bring different experiences into parenthood. Taking time to listen to other people's passions, expertise, struggle, upbringing, strength, and bravery provides a more accurate depiction of life. It's stepping outside of the highlight reels we are most often acquainted with and dives deeper into the unique person we are interacting with. Our guest this week is Caroline Kratz. Caroline is a former U.S. rowing national team athlete and two-time Olympic trials participant prior to meeting her husband and having her five children. Today, Caroline continues to challenge her athleticism and shares her knowledge through coaching a variety of classes at Triangle Chiropractic and Rehabilitation Center in Raleigh, North Carolina. She also has an in-depth understanding of the benefits of cold water immersion. This episode with Caroline is an open and vulnerable discussion of bravery, perseverance, triumph, self-knowledge, and forgiveness. It's also important to note that this episode contains content that may be triggering to some listeners and is created for adult audiences only. We advise listener discretion for discussion of mental illness, eating disorder, suicide, alcoholism, and sexual abuse. And now our conversation with Caroline. Hi, Caroline. I have been looking forward to having this talk with you for a long time. As soon as Christy and I met you, Oh gosh, it's almost a year ago now. We knew right away that we wanted to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to have our listeners learn more about you as well. So we're going to dive in. And our first question for you is, will you please fill in the blank? Motherhood is challenging. No doubt. Without a doubt. It's, it's hard, but it's so rewarding. It's, it's great. I, I couldn't imagine a better job, but it's, it's hard right? There's, there's no book to like really guide you. Well, you have to follow your instincts and hopefully have a good partner to help you, but it's challenging. That's the first word that came to my mind. And no matter the age, whether it's a newborn or a 16 year old, it provides a challenge in every, in every facet of your life. And I'm here for it. Absolutely. Every single age brings a different challenge. Nothing Mm -hmm. I feel is easier or harder. It just shifts because people ask, oh, you have older kids now. So that must be easier because you don't have to get them ready for school. And I'm like, well, there's other things that (laughs) you have to deal with, with older kids that you don't have to worry about as much with younger kids. So I 100% agree with you. Yeah. What do you value most in a friendship? Two things, honesty and humor. I'm, I'm doing both those things. If you can make me laugh, I'm, I'm all yours. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Both those things, honesty and humor. 
Oh, I love those answers. That's really, that's true. And then the honesty piece. I mean, who wants somebody that's not going to be forthcoming with telling you honest answers to things, right? Right. Right. Just lay it out on the table. Like I've got nothing to hide. And I hope my friends don't either. Like just be who you are in that moment. And I respect that. Like that garners a huge amount of respect from me. And I, I love that. And I will give you the same. Oh, wonderful. What's the most daring thing you've ever done? I would say when I challenged myself to do cold water immersion, that was the most daring thing. And that sounds crazy because now it's my job. But when my doctor told me that I should look into it, I thought that's crazy. Cold water sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. But she knew I was into optimizing human human performance and wellness. And so, you know, after our, our meeting, I went home and, and, you know, looked it up and read about all the research and why it was so good. I was like, dang it. She's right. I've got to try this. But it took me two months. It took me two months to get over this mental hurdle of like going into cold water. I just could not get through that barrier. I was so scared. I don't know what, you Uh know, I'm willing to get uncomfortable in a workout, in a conversation with my kids, you know, you name it, but cold water, I was not willing to go and get uncomfortable. And then I started asking myself questions. Well, why, why wasn't I willing to get on? Why, why, why won't I do this? Is it going to kill me? No, cold water is not going to kill me. And so when I started to just strip it down and ask myself those questions, I realized like, well, what do I have to lose? It's just water. It happens to be cold. Let's figure out what happens. And so I started with 10 seconds. That's all I did. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is exhilarating. And 10 seconds quickly morphed into 30 seconds to a minute to now I'm like almost swimming in it. And now I coach people through it and I've lived through it every day of my life to understand how the mind, body, spirit are connected when I immerse myself in cold water, because it's certainly not a natural thing, but it's opened my eyes and my mind, my, my body, my, my spirit to what happens when I say yes, when the initial answer is no, I don't want to do that. What happens if I start to say yes to these little moments that scare me, that make me uncomfortable? What's going to happen? And, and I started to say, yes, I said yes to cold water immersion. And now I, I am a coach. It's learning to say yes and taking those little dares. So when you started, did you start with a cold shower or did you start with the immersion? I started with a cold shower. Ew. (laughs) I know it, it. Yeah. To be fair, it was the middle of winter. It was like early December, middle of December. I can't remember, but it was cold out. So the water temperature at, in our house was also quite cold. And so I just cranked it. I cranked it to cold and I had done enough research to realize it's the breath, understanding how to use my breath through the cold water was really going to help me mitigate my emotional response to that situation. And so I use one super long exhale. And after I'd finished, you know, 10 seconds had gone by and I was like, wow, I'm okay. I didn't die. This is amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, anyway, moving on. (laughs) What advice would you give your younger self? Relax, ease up, be just, this world can be so demanding and critical and so judgmental. And I was really critical of myself. Looking back, I would have just told her 
have more fun, relax. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be okay. Breathe. And that resonates so much with me because I think I would tell my younger self something very similar. I agree with you. Caroline, you have done some amazing things in your life and your athletic accomplishments are very impressive. You found rowing and you made it to the junior national team and eventually the senior national team with hopes of making it to the Olympics Mm -hmm. in both 2000 and 2004. You ultimately didn't make it to those Olympic games, but you did meet your husband mm-hmm. while training, which is a pretty amazing win. Mm-hmm. You've also had several bids to the world championships for triathlons, which mm-hmm. you actually trained for both during and after your pregnancies. And you shared some stories around that, that I think are very, very fascinating. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine what training at such an elite level must've been like. Can you describe what your experience was like for you and how you managed those physical demands? Training at the elite level uh, is is pretty much what some people may have heard. It is literally eating, sleeping, training. So a, a quick snapshot might be waking up around 5.30 or 6, eating oatmeal or a hearty breakfast, getting to the boathouse, training for a good hour and a half whether that's on the water or off the water, uh, a small break, maybe some video to, to watch the video and then back on the water, then lunch. Uh, there, if there's a job, then you need to go to your job and then back for training again in the afternoon for probably a good two to three hours uh, session. Yeah. So, and then you get home and then you eat dinner and you go to bed and you wake up and you do it all over again. And then you're getting tested all the time between your teammates. You're actually physically getting tested by getting your fingers pricked with, you know, to measure the lactate in your blood. You're getting mass put on you to just measure your VO2 max. It's pretty cutthroat. (laughs) It's no joke. So you, you've got to love training and there's quite a bit of racing, but you know, I had that dream since I'd say probably 1984 is to, to make the Olympics. And so I, I, I strived for that for a very long time until I didn't make it. And then after the second try, I realized that my future was not in the pursuit of an Olympic team, but to uh, have a family. Now, when does the training start? How long does that go on? So world championships with rowing kind of fall in line with the Olympics. So it's usually an August, September timeframe for that world championships. And then after the world championships, the athletes probably get somewhere between a month and six weeks off. And so everybody kind of disperses to their, their hometown or wherever, and just, just relaxes. And then I'd say late September, early October, everybody comes back to the boathouse, comes back to training and October through basically August is it's on. Obviously you need a lot of physical strength for what you accomplished through all of that training, but I feel like you need an immense amount of mental training as well. Like there is some mantra (laughs) or affirmations you're using or something that you are doing mentally and emotionally to prepare for that daily. You might not call it drudgery. That was the word that came to my mind, but (laughs) yeah, no, it's Um, like everybody. How, how did you manage that? Like, how, how did you mentally deal with all of that? Great question. And I don't have a concrete answer other than when the spirit knows what it wants, 
that's mm-hmm. the driving force. But I also had a very simple mantra that I'd had from, from when I was a kid that was aim for perfection and settle for excellence. And it just drove me to be the best all the time, mm-hmm. not necessarily the the healthiest mindset, but that's what got me to that level. So speaking of being driven and pursuing excellence, what was your experience emotionally and mentally when you ultimately didn't make it to the Olympics? How did you process through that disappointment? It was a crumbling of dreams. And so in a, in a very weird way, I was shattered, but also fulfilled because concurrently I'd met my husband. So I'd had this dream forever and ever and ever to make the Olympics. And then somewhere between April and June of 2002, I believe it was, I met Andrew and it was love at first sight. And it was just like, that was the complete picture. And once we met, it was like, there was a a chink in my armor and everything started to open and I realized that making the Olympics was no longer maybe what I wanted after all. And what I was seeking was love. I look back on that with those eyes, but when I was going through it, I was, I was devastated. I was shattered. I ended up in the hospital uh, with just severe depression, which is not very uncommon, unfortunately, for Olympic athletes or Olympic aspiring athletes. It's almost like a PTSD where you are with a group of people who become your sisters or brothers and you have a mission and a goal and you work together and you fight together and you might lose one or two. And then all of a sudden you get dropped from the team and your whole identity, my whole identity of what I've strove for was all of a sudden gone as I knew it to be. I couldn't be, I wouldn't let myself be anybody else, but an athlete. at a high caliber level. And so I, I, I I was shattered. I was shattered in so many ways, but Andrew was there and he supported me. And when I was released from the hospital, I, you know, I got back into teaching spin and I coached people in the gym. And so I still had my fingers and my, my, my physical space in, in physicality and coaching others, but it, it was hard. It was really hard. And I, I did struggle with it for, for many, many, many years, as many veterans do when they decide to retire or leave the service for whatever reason that may be. It's, it's a very big identity crisis that does happen. And I wish, and I hope that there's more support that happens for athletes or, you know, I'm not sure on the veteran side, I can't speak to that, but, um, it's, it's, it it was intense. Now, how old were you during this time? Um, I was probably 26, 27. Okay. Is that usually the average age of people that are going through this intense training? It, it does vary. You get some college athletes and you get people who are into their mid thirties. It's a pretty forgiving sport with age, you know, twenties to thirties, you know, or gymnastics, you you've pretty got, you've got a small window of athleticism to show your stuff, but rowing and sometimes with running these sports, you can, you have athletes that are shining in a greater age range. 
I loved when you said that meeting Andrew and falling in love was a chink in your armor. I think that's so true. I think that for so many people, you get invested in a, in a goal or something you're working towards. And it's true. It happens. Love works its way in. And all of a sudden it's like this flowering and things open up and your attention goes elsewhere. And I think so many people, when they go into a new relationship, they, they kind of are taken aback by that. They're surprised by it, but you can really see it as outsiders looking in on other relationships. You can see where like the focus kind of shifts and there's this opening to other things. Um, so I thought that was a really beautiful way of, of saying that, that, that love sort of opened this up for you. Yeah. And then you also mentioned the, the change in your identity. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that perhaps not at an Olympic elite athletic level, but a lot of women and moms can identify with. There is a huge change in identity when you become a mother. Mm -hmm. So many women identify either in their work or goals that they have set for themselves, and then they become a mother and mm -hmm. everything shifts and everything changes. And one of the things that Cindy and I have seen a lot of is the, the physical changes that a woman's body goes through during pregnancy and delivery and, and raising and having a child. We've often discussed the pressure many mothers feel to get their body back after yeah. baby. Uh, it's quote unquote snapback culture. And it has a tremendous impact on many, many women and particularly for you with your athletic background, I wonder if you experienced this pressure. For example, you've shared a story of you doing push-ups on the hospital floor after each of your children were born in the hospital doing push-ups. So obviously athleticism, the physicality, your, your body is so important to you. And I'm wondering how this snapback culture played a role in your life. Yeah, great question. I'm, I am not immune to the weird things that society places on women, you know? And yeah, I, I fell victim and prey to that same idea of like, great, you had a, you had a baby. So let's get back into the genes as quick as possible. Right. I'm not immune to that. I guess for me, like I'm, I, I'm athletic and genetically like, you know, I guess I did snap back pretty quickly. I'm, I'm a, maybe atypical on that. But I, yeah, I definitely feel the pressure, felt the pressure. I think every woman, I don't know if there's ever a time when you just like, yeah, I just don't care anymore. You know, I don't know if that ever goes away, but maybe it shifts. It's not about fitting in the jeans or whatever it is. It's, it's about feeling healthy. That's really where I'm at in this space and time. But yeah, you know, for me, it, for all those babies, as, as you said, like I gave birth and then as soon as the nurses would leave the room and everything was cool, I'm like, I'm, I'm doing pushups because like, I still, my identity was still like feeling strong yeah. and I could, I wouldn't allow myself to feel strong in the fact that I just gave birth, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I didn't allow myself to grasp that. I knew that I knew like, Hey, this is a big thing. But like, I still was so entrenched in this idea that my identity was based on my physicality, what I could do through sport. So yeah, I definitely am not immune to, to that, that snapback. Yeah. Culture. Would you say that your definition of strength has changed over the years? 
Oh, absolutely. Strength used to be, you know, how fast, how far, how many reps, how much weight that numerical value was synonymous with how valued I felt about myself. And then I realized as I was growing older and aging that I was no longer as fast or could lift Mm -hmm. as much or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so then I wasn't really feeling good about myself because I wasn't feeling these, you know, weird metrics of what I thought mattered. I started to realize like my strength is in patience, in learning, uh, still learning and just being there for my children, for my husband and strength is continuing with a passion or continuing with something, even though you may not want to at that moment. I think it's super important for our listeners to know that you have five children. So you went through childbirth five times and just the strength that that takes in and of itself to go through pregnancy and childbirth. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a lot, you know, I was pregnant six times, five births. So yeah, that's, that's a lot of strength just to have full-term pregnancies for the most part. My fourth child was premature, but yeah, that's a lot of strength. In hindsight, would you approach any aspect of your postpartum period differently? I would have been more patient. Yeah. I, I don't need to do push-ups on the hospital floor. <laughs> I, I have a beautiful <laughs> mental picture of you though. Like in the, I don't know if you wore the diapers. I assume all the women wore, wore the diapers and the pads and you're yeah, you know, in the mouth. The belly flapping. I just remember my belly being like so loose when I would walk and I'd be like, oh, it's like an udder. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I would just look back on that postpartum and just have patience that my physicality will return, but my children need me here and now. And, you know, I wasn't educated on all the postpartum rehab. I had no idea, no idea about pelvic floor strengthening, about diaphragmatic breathing, like no clue. Well, it's changed a lot in over. Yeah. Cause your first child is 16, right? Correct. Okay. So can you go through the ages of your kiddos? Yeah. So Gunner is 16, Thor is 15, Rocket is 12, Ava is 11, Boomer is nine. That's awesome. I, I love that you said patience. I think so many women need to hear that. The vast majority of women do not have patience for letting their body have time to heal and perhaps seeking out postpartum physical therapy and just all, all of those different things. We just need to give our body time to heal. I, we have a lot of physical therapists that mention, you know, how long recovery is given for you for something on your knee, a knee surgery. And, you know, you go through pregnancy and delivery and some people have C-sections and you're out of the hospital two days later, you're expected to come home and care for a baby and lift them and do all the housework. And, you know, it's just like right back into it where that would never happen in so many other surgeries or or physical things that we go through. I think I took more recovery after running a marathon (laughs) than I did after having a child, you know, it's just, it's a totally different thing. Yeah. We have to touch on just a tiny bit more. You brought it up earlier as the most daring thing that Mm -hmm. you've ever done. And I, I love that. And I love it after just having our conversation on strength and patience as well, because both of those are needed in Mm -hmm. cold water immersion. And that's actually how Cindy and I first met you. You coached both of us through our experience with cold water immersion and you were fantastic. You are a fantastic coach. I don't think I would have made it without you there. So 
we're grateful that we met you in that capacity, but we'd love for you to dive a little bit more into it. Um, so our listeners can know what are the benefits to the body, the mind, how can you use it as a tool to optimize your own personal wellness? Yeah. So cold water immersion is scary for most people. We're looking at therapeutic temperatures between 39 and 59, usually somewhere in that window. And also to about only two to three minutes for an ideal therapeutic window. You could definitely go longer than that. So my job really is to just coach people who come into the clinic to receive treatment. And usually it's for some kind of inflammation and I coach them on their breath. And really it's, it's about slowing the breath and slowing the exhale. When we slow the exhale, we are telling our bodies to stay as best it can in the parasympathetic that stay calm, stay rested, digest. Whereas sympathetic, you're, you know, shorter breaths and you're in fight or flight, which most of us are in that state anyway, given the crazy nature of our world. So anyway, we can look to de-stress and learn how to control our breath and reduce inflammation. I'm here for it. And so cold water therapy is one of those ways where just two or three minutes by using your breath effectively will allow for the vasoconstriction, the narrowing of the vascular, the vascularity in your body to move lymphatic fluid through the areas that are stuck. Now, because it's so cold, the breath is really the gift. So by focusing on the breath, what happens, uh, in my opinion, is that it gives you the presence of being here now. And when you're here now, it is, uh, it unites the mind, body, spirit. And I think most of us are going through our day-to-day lives with being present kind of, but our mind is like, okay, I've got to go to the store. I've got to go pick up the kids. I've got to answer these emails, but I'm also typing out, you know, like it, we're just, our brains are not, they're everywhere. And so the cold water really allows us to kind of sink everything in alignment within us by using that breath. When we do so, just those two to three minutes longer, if you want, we have a 250% increase in dopamine. And so after getting out, we are flooded with a ton of wonderful chemicals throughout our body that last for hours and hours and hours and hours. Cold water therapy is now being used in treatment centers for addicts to help break addiction. It's a phenomenal therapy, just like sauna is, is, is wonderful as well, but it's kind of cool to be in, in today's world with, with medicine still, you know, it's still very much Western focused, but it's, it's great for emergency care. But I think a lot of the chronic issues that Americans are suffering, and I think one in four Americans has a chronic illness can be alleviated or, or, or fixed through more holistic remedies, you know, through diet, through exercise, through cold water therapy, through sauna, through acupunctures. And I think people are very hungry for ways to fix themselves as they feel like the Western medicine model is starting to fail them. And that's where I come in. This episode is sponsored by Her Circle, the supportive and welcoming community for moms created by Her Health Collective. Her Circle is a welcoming and supportive community for moms who are passionate about making change. 
for themselves, their families, the community, and the world. Together, this village of women are revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. From an active, private online community and the incredible daily chats hosted there, to our many virtual gatherings, including support groups, mom's night out, volunteer opportunities, book club, family adventures, coffee chats, and so much more. We love providing moms the chance to connect and create authentic relationships with one another. The network of experts in her circle are a phenomenal resource and provide great learning experiences for moms on topics ranging from women's health to parenting. We cover the issues that matter to moms the most, from virtual expert Q&As to one-on-one -on -one Wellness Minute consultations and support groups. We are committed to getting moms in front of the information, experts, and support they need most. To learn more about Her Circle, head to www.herhealthcollective.com slash her dash circle. We have a limited number of spaces and the doors only open a few times a year. So be sure to add your name to the no obligation waitlist so you are the first to know when the doors officially reopen. You mentioned inflammation. Is this a therapy that someone would just come in for for the treatment of something, or is this someone something that someone could do regularly, consistently for their whole life? Yes and yes, okay. both. Yeah. So so where I work, it's definitely people. My chiropractors send people to me to alleviate you know low back problems or a hip issue or ankles or knees or shoulders or anything anything in the body alleviates uh, migraines, uh, Crohn's disease, you name it, any chronic condition, it helps reduce those symptoms because a lot of these chronic problems are inflammation in the body. So any way we can look to reduce inflammation, not without a pharmaceutical drug, I think is a win. And it's great for that, but it's also great. I still do it every day, just a couple minutes a day. And it just you know, like some people meditate, some people do yoga, some people, you know, it's working out and, and I, yes, I do all those things as well, but cold water is just, it just kind of locks me in straight with my body spirit. How old can you start doing this? So in terms of our children, great question. You know, I don't have a solid answer on that. I will say that my nine-year-old has partaken. Every one of my children has partaken in the cold water tub. And that was the tub was temperature was more in the fifties, not super cold and around 39. So, and they would go in for a couple minutes for sure. So that's a great question. And it's kind of an individual basis, but never ever forcing cold water therapy or immersion on any child that does not want to do it or any human that does not want to do it. And there's different variations that you could do as well. Is that right? Like you could essentially do it in the shower or you could fill your bathtub with cold water and immerse yourself in your bathtub. And then you could go to a specific location that has a specialty cold water filtration tub. Yep. Is that all correct? Yep, absolutely. Okay. You can do all of that. You can, and then at where I work, you can do different things. You know, if, like I said, you can just go in for two to three minutes, but we also offer a Nordic cycle. So it's a hot shower and then cold tub and you cycle a couple of times. 
So what that's doing is basically strength training for your vascular system. We're vasodilating in a hot shower, then it's vasoconstriction in the tub, vasodilating in the shower, back in the tub, and so on and so forth. So that's the Nordic cycle. And then we create shiver sessions as well, where we're not looking to go anywhere past two minutes, but looking for anywhere between one and two minutes, ideally with a partner. And you do a couple rounds of going into the tub and cycling out and standing outside of the tub for, let's say, one minute. And then you just rotate with your partner back and forth. And what we're looking to do is create a shiver. Most people are like, oh, I don't want to shiver. I'm cold. Let me get a jacket. But there's actually uh, science that shows that when you shiver, a chemical called succinate is released from the muscle. And succinate is what transfers white fat to brown fat. When babies are born, they have a predominant brown fat distribution. So actually babies cannot shiver. And then as we grow and we get older and become more sedentary and adjusted to 73 degrees all the time, that brown fat starts to turn into white fat. And now we don't have as high a metabolic system in our, in our body. So by creating shiver sessions, you know, we're, we're in and out, in and out, in and out, we are looking to convert white fat back to brown fat whether it's a tub or your shower or, you know, a place where I work where it's a cold filtrated tub, you know, there's different ways to utilize cold water. I'm assuming that by regularly participating in cold water immersion therapy, there's a cumulative effect. Um, you, you had mentioned that getting in the, the tub gives you hours and hours and hours of this feel good feeling and fights inflammation. But I'm assuming if you're doing this regularly, there's more of a cumulative effect in the body. It's not just like a one-time thing. I believe that to be true. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I've been a practitioner for almost two years, daily practitioner. And I would say uh, without medical data that I'm way more grounded and calm without illness. Yeah. I, I feel, I feel great. I can't say enough good things about it. It's just, it's like somebody who, who picks up meditation mm-hmm. and it just changes their life forever. And, and it changes the chemistry in their brain. It changes their body's immune system and its ability to fight off infection. It's, it's so too with me, with cold water therapy. Do you all have a tub? We do have a tub. I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> Well, when you're in the tub, you can't help, but sort of go into a semi-meditative state. It's the only way to like, you're right. so focused on your breathing. And I mean, it, it is, I, it's like yeah. part it's of a head game that, yeah. for sure. You need a coach. I needed a coach when I was yeah. there. I was like, this is beyond my ability to cope because I yeah. do not like to be cold. And it was emotional for me. I cried. Mm-hmm. I was crying during this yeah. session. For sure. We've talked before on our podcast in previous episodes, the effect that generational influences have on our lives and on our parenting. And when I say this, I mean that each person brings their own trauma, their own experiences, and the different coping mechanisms that they have acquired over the years into their relationships and their parenting. So whatever your grandmother or grandfather had, most likely was passed to your parents and then so on down the generational line until someone recognizes that it might not be the most healthy pattern and decides to put a stop to it and adopts more constructive techniques. This 
is often referred to as reparenting. Looking back on your childhood, will you share how you were raised and the influence that it had on you? Sure. Yeah. So my parents are still married and they did the best that they could. I realize that now, but growing up, it was hard. They were distant. I don't know if aloof is the right word, but they weren't physical. And I'm a very sensitive individual. And I think as the only female, I had two older brothers, I really needed that physical affirmation, those hugs, the verbal, I love you. I, and I never got that until many years later when I was in therapy. And I, I, I explicitly, I said, like, I, this is what I need. And it felt so crazy to, to be the child saying, this is what I need. I need you to say, I love you. I need to be hugged, like almost embarrassing. And I felt bad, but yeah, it was, it was not the easiest. My parents fought a lot and I would go to bed distraught almost every night. And, and I had an older brother, uh, two older brothers that, you know, were, we, all of us were spaced four and a half years apart. So it was almost like I was a, a single child, honestly. And it was a very, very lonely time. And because I didn't feel that, that physical verbal affirmation, it's why I threw myself into athletics because that's how I felt. I got validation. Sure. And how are you choosing to parent your children differently from how your parents parented you? So it's interesting that term reparenting, you know, I think that's the easy parenting because it's almost in my genes to like, to not be physical, to not verbally be open with my children. And I recently implemented what's called the troll toll for my children and Andrew. And it's basically like, listen, you're a troll until you give me a hug. So, and it's, it's the best thing ever. That's so uh, sweet. Yeah, no. And I love it. It's, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's forces me. I was, I was looking for ways to enact like more physicality with my children and without it being forced in, in a way that didn't seem authentic to me. And so we have the troll toll now. It's a daily thing. And my 16 and 15 year old boys are like, all right, I'll pay the troll toll. Uh, but <laughs> does this happen first thing in the morning? Like when did this happen? It, anytime, anytime. <laughs> this is going to have to be implemented in my home. I really like this. Yes. <laughs> yeah, gotta pay the troll toll. Otherwise, if you don't give me a hug, you're a troll. So when you were growing up, did it feel like love was being withheld from you because your love language, quote unquote, wasn't being addressed? Is that how it felt for you? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know if I just, I, maybe they were scared. I, I, they didn't know how to give the love that I needed because that's what had been taught to them. Right. Right. So generationally speaking, I feel like I'm stopping, helping to stop that disconnect, that physical, emotional disconnect, and hopefully creating some kind of more meaningful, more impactful, more togetherness with my children. 
You mentioned that as an adult, you came back and you were able to verbalize then what it was that you needed after being through therapy and everything. Do you feel that that had a healing effect for you? Yes, I I think so. Uh, To, to walk through it, to, to label it, to connect with it, and then to be able to find ways to implement it. Yeah, I think so. Is it easy? No, not all the time. Yeah. I think it's so powerful that as adults, we can, if we're aware enough, we can look back and we can analyze things and we can see where maybe we had something missing in our childhood and we can verbalize it mm-hmm. and how powerful that would be if as children, we were able to verbalize things. Cause I, I truly believe that the vast majority of parents are doing the best they can. As, as yeah. you said, they're, they're doing yeah. the best they can with what they've learned and what they have, mm-hmm. but children cannot verbalize their needs or their feelings in so many ways. And that's, it's just, it's the struggle there, but there is power as an adult in being able to verbalize that. Right. And, and creating that open environment in that household where, you know, whether you have one child or five children or, or eight children, it's, it's creating an environment where all these individual beings feel like they're heard and respected and understood on some level. But with five children, I mean, it's hard because sometimes there is a blanket parenting statement that goes out. Everybody's picking up, you name it, this room. Well, I didn't do it. Well, it doesn't matter. Everybody's picking it up, you know? So yeah, it's just hopefully about creating an open environment for each child to, to grow to the best of their ability with their God-given spirit. When you approached your parents and spoke to them and brought it to their attention, how did they respond to you saying this to them? I don't think it moved the needle that much, honestly. Mm. It was kind of just, I just felt like I was having a conversation, like any conversation, whether it was the weather and, you know, I was so broken at that time that I, I didn't care if they didn't believe me or didn't accept that what my truth was, because I knew what my truth was. And that's, that took a long time for me to get to and a lot of heartache. And so if they weren't willing to accept it or own it or take responsibility for it, which they did, then I would find a new family. And so to speak, I'd find Mm -hmm. friends to create that family, but did it change them? Did my, did my, you know, request Not really, not, it wasn't, I don't feel like it moved the needle that much. There was so much trauma for, for them having lost a son to suicide that I I think that it's, you know, it's stymied their ability to give, to continue to give what I was asking for Mm. or their ability to give as much as I was asking for. And and perhaps he did try, but it was not enough. Sure. And, and perhaps we can move into giving our listeners a little bit more context on mm-hmm. what was making this an even more complex situation. You had alluded to some traumatic experiences, one of which was your brother's suicide, but regardless, traumatic experience, are, they're going to make an impactful footprint on our lives. Mm-hmm. And like you had said, your childhood held several events that you say, quote unquote, shattered your soul. Mm -hmm. If you're comfortable, would you be willing to talk about some of those major life events that had occurred? 
what were some of the coping mechanisms that were developed in order to deal with the trauma that you endured during this, this time? Sure. So I, there's three things that I would highlight or four. So the first one I alluded to in the very beginning that my parents fought constantly. And I think that's, that's pretty traumatic for any child to go up, go through because they don't have the emotional maturity to understand what's happening, except that there's a disconnect between mom and dad. Secondly, my mom's weight yo-yoed constantly. She was a larger woman and her weight, she would, she would eat a lot and she would get bigger and then she would diet. And so I grew up as a very young girl learning that a woman should never be comfortable in her body, that a woman should always diet. And so I started my obsession with food or limitation of food very early on, probably under the age of 10, which, you know, what I was a very, very tall child. I was the tallest girl, uh, a tallest student in class until a sophomore year. I already felt very awkward being so tall and uncomfortable. And I developed early and I just was kind of this woman in a kid's body. And so I started to diet early. And so I became anorexic probably around 13, 14, 15. And then at the age of 15, my second older brother was in a skiing accident and it paralyzed him from the waist down. And after a month in the hospital, he decided to commit suicide. And so that was earth shattering. And, and it truly did shatter my soul and almost shattered our whole family apart. How we remain together is still a miracle in my opinion. And, you know, I was in and out of hospitals, whether it was for mental health or anorexia or anorexia eventually went into bulimia. And sport usually kept everything in check and I would flirt with eating disorders and then I'd be kind of normal and then it would kind of rear its head again. And it just was kind of the cyclical, had a cyclical nature in my body and my brain and my spirit. It's really not an issue anymore. I've dealt with that. And fourth and final, through all that turmoil, I had forgotten until probably late into college that I had been sexually molested as a little girl. And the reason I remembered it was because I was starting to see a very unhealthy pattern in my relationships with men. And it was never any physical abuse, but I didn't like who I was with these men. And they weren't, you know, they weren't mistreating me. I wasn't mistreating them, but it just was some unhealthy patterns. And all of a sudden I realized what had happened when I was a child. And so when I went home, I confronted the perpetrator again, willing to risk everything, not being believed like, like, Hey, you did this to me. And I remember everything. And my, you know, my parents were there and the perpetrator owned up to it and admitted, yes, I did do this. And it was, is really what I needed was the validation. And then my spirit told me, and I really felt in my best interest and his best interest that forgiveness was essential for, to freedom. And so I forgave him and we hugged and things are much, much better now. He's a therapist for sex addiction. So that trauma, uh, that tragedy, I think has turned a lot of that uh, situation into a triumph. And we look back at a lot of experiences in our life as being very hard or difficult and something that we hope to never repeat, but they, without a doubt, will shape us 
for the better if we can get through them through the support of family and friends. Thank you so much for sharing yeah. all of that. Uh, we can only believe that that was just really difficult, all of those experiences to go through. I also had lost, have lost a brother and, you know, it's just devastating through loss and through having these various different traumatic experiences that make an impact permanently on our yep. lives. The traumatic experiences that you mentioned have the potential to remain a life burden that many people struggle to heal from. Will you talk to us a little bit about how you worked through the trauma that you encountered? Gosh, yes, absolutely. There's no one tool that works better than others. You know, I think everybody has to navigate and figure out the map that works best for them. You know, the accepted modalities for therapy were psychotherapy and drugs or SSRIs. Mm -hmm antidepressants. And so that's what I went through for God knows how many years, 10 years or so. And I, it, I think for me, it just numbed me out. It just kind of made it, it, it helped me just to coexist in life, but not really live passionately. And so, yeah, I, I think I just learned that if I was going to live authentically to my spirit, it was going to be without drugs and without therapy. And that my spirit, if I listened hard enough and was attuned enough, would guide me to the right place. But it's, that's a very vague way of figuring out how I got on my path to healing. And I, th I still feel like I'm still healing. It's an ongoing journey. It's, it's peeling back the layers of the onion, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And did, did you, do you feel like you really dove into your athleticism and your sports as a coping mechanism to help? Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Yes. Right. So I used athleticism to, to numb myself out a little bit, right? If, if I'm going from workout to workout to workout, I'm high on endorphins all the time. Right. And when I'm not high on endorphins all the time and I'm just doing the laundry and I'm figuring out the dinner and I'm doing the carpool, well, that glass of wine looks pretty innocuous. Like I might start sipping on some wine at 12 and I'll continue to sip it. And so this insidious little thing called alcohol started to creep into my life more and more and more and more. You know, I, I started drinking when I was 13. That was my first sip and I loved it. And I flirted with it a little bit through high school but I was never really out of control, but I, I, I really liked it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then when kids started to happen and my athleticism started to kind of wane, I just, I wouldn't say I was an un unhappy. I just was feeling stuck and alcohol seemed to just soften the edges. And, you know, that little glass of wine went to two glasses of wine to three to four to now we're on to the second bottle. And now I'm just going to go to bed and I'll wake up. And it was just this pattern that started to repeat itself and escalate. And I don't think I was ever a danger to my family, but I was just checked out. Honestly, I was really just quite checked out. And, you know, it was one of those come to Jesus moments and day of reckoning where I'm like, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to do this. This is inauthentic to my soul. I am better than this. What is happening to me? You know, I'm having these conversations in my head and I, I really felt like I couldn't stop drinking. 
And so thus began my journey into AA and I started going to AA and I, I dove into it hardcore and I sponsored and I lived all the steps, 12 steps. And it really taught me how to live life on life's terms. Well, that my parents hadn't really illuminated to me. And I am so, so, so grateful to AA, but that reset and learning how to deal with life on life's terms was exactly what I needed. I realize now at 46 that life is so short and I want to be present for every single moment. And if I'm numbed out, then I'm really not present. So, and my kids deserve all of, all of that. They deserve my, the whole me, mind, body, spirit. It's apparent how much work you've put into yourself and how much time you spend on making sure that you're present, the mindfulness. It's, it's really admirable. You had referred to having some unhealthy relationships with romantic partners after you recognized your sexual abuse. Did it have an effect on your relationship with your husband? I would say that I am still in the process of revealing revealing more love within me. There's still a scared girl inside and I'm working on releasing that. And my husband, God bless him. He's super patient and understanding. I I haven't held anything back from him. He knows the full history. So I'm, I'm working on that. I think that our, if we had any issues, it was, it would just be me learning to be more intimate and I'm definitely working on that. It's, and it's not that I don't trust him. I just, I don't know if like I fully trust myself in that moment, but I'm learning to, to get there and I'm excited too. Yeah. Our experiences and fears that we have in our youth influence our parenting because we don't want our children to have the same experiences that we had. I find myself doing that all the time with my kids. It's just this fear that I want to just protect them. Does the memory of what happened to you instill a silent fear that affects your parenting? I wouldn't say it's fear because I try not to live through fear at all because I think fear is the opposite of love. I'm just mindful of it. I'm just really mindful. And I I definitely find myself tripping back into patterns that maybe my parents had emulated. And when I catch myself, I try to correct it in whatever way or form that, that could be with that child. Yeah. But it's, it's more just an awareness. Mm, Yeah. Or do you have any suggestions for parents that are listening various different precautionary measures that they might be able to put in place as an attempt to prevent an assault from happening to their children? And have you implemented any specific suggestions or strategies in your own parenting? I don't have any suggestions because sometimes the the molestation happened even when my parents were in the house. So I think you can do everything you can as a parent to be safe and and keep your children protected, but bad things still can happen. And thank God we didn't have the internet back then. But, you know, I think that's, that's the, maybe the biggest threat is the infiltration of the internet into, into the household. 
and how much that has a control on our children. I think that's, that's a real issue. Hmm. Yeah. How do you limit that or what's your construct for that in your home? Well, the construct is it's definitely has to be earned and the kids do have some screen time for sure, but it's, it is limited and the older they get, the more they're allowed to have access to it. But we definitely feel like since it's so pervasive in our world that negating it completely from our house is, is not realistic or viable. And so, you know, and the schools use it, it's learning how to use it in our house with parameters and safety measures that we feel are acceptable for our household. And that's so hard because even when you put them in place, there is a loophole or something happens. And we had an incident uh, that happened and we felt like we were putting up all these parameters as well. And it still, still happened to fall upon something they shouldn't have. So yes. And just to touch a little bit more on your experience losing your brother. You were 15 when this happened. Correct. Do you, so this question may be hard for you to answer. Do you remember any warning signs that he gave? You had said he was in an accident. So I'm sure that that change in his life Mm -hmm. was so hard and through must've thrown him into a very fragile mental state of mind, Mm -hmm. but were there any other warning signs that he gave that we should be looking for as parents for our kids. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I think it's, uh, you know, the accident happened on December 31st when he was in the skiing accident and then really about a month that he was in the hospital. And so February 2nd was the day he decided to end his life. And that's right. During the school year, I was, I was, you know, deep into academics and into swimming. And so when I could, I would go visit him at the hospital, but I was also so mired in my own 15 year old drama, uh, that I didn't have the mental and emotional acuity to perceive his discomfort with life. I didn't, I had, cause I was so uncomfortable in my own life that I couldn't see that. So I don't have anything. And I think that's that that's the nature of suicide that sometimes you do see somebody who's in the dark and you're, you're trying to help them get out, but you know, it's up to them to help, you know, a good supportive network, but it it's, it's so hard. And then you could see somebody that you think is doing fine on the outside, but in the inside, they are crumbling. Sometimes there's just no way to know it's, it's terrible. Caroline, I just want to say thank you so much for your bravery and being willing to share so many hard pieces of your story. I know it's not easy to talk about these things, but in sharing our stories, it it truly does help people. So thank you for for being willing to share with us. We're going to wrap with one final question. It's a short and sweet one. What message do you think every mom should hear? Don't try to be perfect just do good. Don't get lost in trying to be perfect by, by missing the ability to do good every single day because perfect doesn't exist. So just do good and be open and honest. And I think that is a great way to, to parent and to live. Thank you, Caroline. And we know that you do, you live that way every day. We appreciate you spending your time with us today. Appreciate you guys. Thank you so much.
Our discussion with Caroline provided important takeaways. Here are our three highlights. Number one, Caroline discussed her journey to implementing cold water immersion into her life. Her process began with just 10 second showers and evolved to loving the practice so much that she shares its benefits with others by coaching individuals through their immersion session. She explained that she coaches on the breathing and that it's really about slowing the breath and slowing the exhale. Cold water immersion helps to de-stress and reduce inflammation through vasoconstriction. When your blood vessels contract, it helps your body to move lymphatic fluid through the areas that are stuck. Focusing on the breath slows down our mind, keeps us in the present moment, and provides a large increase in dopamine. Number two, Caroline had several traumatic events occur in her life. She summarized them into four events that shaped who she is. Number one, her parents had a strained relationship. Number two, her mom's dissatisfaction with her own body sent a message to Caroline that her body was not to be trusted, loved, and appreciated, but rather manipulated through dieting. Number three, the suicide of her brother at the age of 15 and the way it almost shattered her whole family. And number four, her realization in early adulthood that she had been sexually molested as a child. Each person's struggle looks different as well as the way they choose to work through the effects left behind. Caroline has used many methods over the years to process her struggle, some of which include therapy and listening to her own intuition. She stated that, quote, we can look back at a lot of experiences in life that were very hard or difficult and something that we hope to never repeat, but they, without a doubt, will shape us for the better if we can get through them with the support of family and friends, end quote. The healing journey is continuous and everyone must find their own path to what works best for them. It isn't a quick process, but one that takes nurturing and dedication it's also not a straight path, but a winding road with ups and downs along the way. Number three, our experiences and fears that we have in our youth influence our parenting because we may want to attempt to protect our children from having a similar negative experience as we had. We asked Caroline if she holds a silent fear regarding some of her experiences that possibly affects the way she parents, to which she responded that she wouldn't say it's fear because she tries not to live through fear at all. She stated that she remains mindful of it. There are times that she finds herself tripping back into patterns that may emulate how she was raised and she catches herself and tries to correct it. This is such a great lesson to focus on. Having an awareness and then attempting to correct the situation without placing negative judgment on yourself. It is a much more compassionate and loving response. Bye-bye, friends. We've enjoyed hanging out with you. Follow us so you're the first to know when we drop a new episode. If you enjoyed your time with us, let us know by leaving a review. We always love hearing from you. Until next time, stay true to you.